sang that song, I asked uh, Jerry and, and the gang if they could do that, because that's what we want to talk about today. In fact, the scripture we're going to start with is in Romans chapter 8, and it is that exact idea. Do you believe today that if God is for you, what could be against you? Take that as a we're not so sure yet, preacher, but you've got 45 minutes to convince us, apparently. Romans 8, verse 31, Paul writing. It's a a passage you may be familiar with. Um, It's one that we quote a few verses before quite a bit, but in verse 31, this is what he, he says. What then shall we say in response to this? And here's our phrase. If God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on in verse 32 and says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We started several weeks ago uh, talking about who we are. Actually, we could go back even further. Several months ago, I started a series that was about Jesus. Who is Jesus? And we looked at what Jesus said about himself, some of the I am statements of Jesus. And then on the heels of that, I thought it would be helpful for us to talk about who we are in Christ. Because we know that our faith is based on who he is and what he has done, but often we kind of let who we are in him kind of go by the wayside. We don't live out the truth and the reality that God himself through his son went out and went to those links through his son to secure for us. And so we said, the first week, we said, who are we? We are ambassadors. It's as if God is making his appeal through us to the world to be reconciled to him. A couple weeks ago, we continued. Today, we hit the idea, we are overcomers. Anybody heard Mandisa's song, Overcomer? I thought about singing it as a special. I decided not to. You know that song? You don't think so? I should have played it. Maybe that would have, what's that? Yeah, you don't want that. Um, trust me. Anyway, that's your homework, like Google or YouTube or whatever, Mandisa's song, Overcomer. You remember Mandisa. She was on American Idol. Do you not remember Mandisa? She's tried out for American Idol and sort of was rather infamous audition because that gentle soul you may have heard of on American Idol, Simon Cowell, basically called her fat her face on national television. Do you remember that? Am I the only one that saw that? Okay, thank you, because I'm not making this stuff up, believe it or not. It it was, and and she, to her credit, didn't really take kindly to that and was accepted into the show and has now gone on uh, to do some pretty remarkable things in in the Christian music world. And, And so she, dare I say, lived out the message of her song, that she was, in fact, an overcomer. But but I can relate at times in my life, and I bet you do too, at times you just feel not like an overcomer, but you feel like you're overwhelmed. Anybody ever felt that way? Like everything is just piling up, and you're you're under it, and there's, there's just no way I can deal with all of this. There's just too much. There's too much going on. And in Romans 8, Paul says, as we just read in verse 31, if God is for us, Who can be against us? And then a few verses later, verse 35, he kind of just gets specific. See if you can't relate to some of these things. In verse 35, he makes a list, and he says, 
who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Let's just look at that list. Shall trouble or hardship? Have you, you got trouble right here in River City? The capital T, and that rhymes with and stands for? Stands for capital. Yeah, I told you that's right. Have y'all not seen the music man? No? Okay, that's one. Wow. Apparently, these pop culture references. Of course, the music man is hardly pop culture. It's sort of like ancient history culture, nonetheless. It's history. It's something. The sermon's history pretty quick if I don't, <laughs> I don't know what's happening here. But anyway, have you have trouble? We all have trouble. In fact, Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. Life is hard, we might say. There are times when, when just stuff happens, and we have no control over it. We feel like we're just at the mercy of circumstance. And, and trouble and hardship comes. It comes in a lot of ways, certainly physically. Uh, there are things physically that happen to us with illness and, and, and disease that we know cause trouble and cause limitations. Uh, we could talk about financially. Sometimes we have trouble. We get in that tight spot. We're not sure how we're going to be able to deal with those things, maybe in a, in a job situation and relationships, uh, marriages or families and parents and kids and all of those sorts of things. There's a lot of times trouble is the reality in our world. And Paul says, shall trouble or hardship separate us from the love of Christ? Good question. He goes on and says not only that, but he says, shall trouble or hardship? I lost my place there. What's the next two on the list? Oh, persecution. Now, we are fortunate in our country. We're not persecuted for our faith. Maybe I should say yet. Maybe we're getting there. I don't know. But we're not. We can gather like this. We can be overtly and clearly Christian. We can talk about the things that we believe, and we don't have to worry about uh, the threat of persecution like some places. But if you try to live for Christ in this world, there will be persecution. It might be uh, in, a, in a school setting. When can you, can you take your Bible to school anymore? Is that like a rule? You can? Okay, good. But I'm sure if there are young people that take their Bibles to school, that might be an issue that's brought up. If you're a young adult and you're trying to live sexually pure before God in relationships, that might be an issue that would seem to be out of touch and you might be uh, made fun of. If you're in the business world and you have an opportunity to make a big deal that you walk away from and leave a lot of money on the table because you feel like, you know, there's some ethical considerations here, there might be problems in your in your business situation, certainly people might say, how could you walk away from that? You're going to leave that? Really? All that? I mean, there are all sorts of times in those subtle ways where persecution is the case. And, and Paul asks, shall persecution separate us? He goes on and says, not only persecution, but famine or nakedness. Thank God you all got clothes on. Amen? That's a good thing. And for the most part in America, we are fortunate and that famine is not the reality. We're not quite as subject to certainly the, the natural things of famine that other parts of the world are, although we could go out and look at the drought in California and see that that's causing some things uh, 
some difficulty there and, and nakedness. I mean, we have, most of us, a closet full of clothes, some of them that we, we haven't worn in a long time. We don't face those things. But if we were ever in a situation where we, where we had that as a real concern, you could see how parts of the world, that, that those two very basic things, food and clothing, that they're without, and how much that can turn your life upside down. Shall famine or nakedness, shall danger or sword. Again, we could go back to that idea of persecution. We don't have to worry in our country about those things, but there are places in the world today, right now, even at this very minute, that people are making a stand for Christ, and it's costing them something. We've actually heard about it in the news even recently, the Christians that are beheaded executed as martyrs for their faith. These are are concerns that the book is 2,000 years old, we might say, but are very real to our world. And Paul says, shall any of those things that you might face separate you from the love of God? And what's the answer to that? No. Why? Because in all these things you are more than conquerors through Christ. All of these things, you are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That word, more than conquerors, is a fascinating word. The the word to win or to to be victorious is the Greek word nikeo, but this word that's translated more than conquerors is kuper nikeo, which means hyper or exceedingly nikeo. You're not just a winner. It's like as, as you think about your life, you remember the Rocky movie? Rocky Balboa, yeah? He is not a Hooper Nikhail. Rocky got the snot beat out of him, didn't he? I mean, you know, cut me, cut me, or whatever it goes. You know, like, I forget which one it's in. You, you saw that one. Where, where he's fighting someone, and, and he's just standing there, and the guy's pummeling him, and he goes back to the corner between rounds, and, and he's, what are you doing? It's a strategy. I'm tired him out. You know, he's just letting him beat the snot. Of course, in the last round, he comes back with that, that final flurry and wins the championship. And the crowd goes, whoa. Go, Adrian. You've seen the movies. Thank you. I'm here all week. No. <laughs> I, I think we look at Christianity like that's it, what it's like. we got to be beaten to a pulp. And life just beats us down, and, and there's nothing we can do about it. And hopefully at the end, some amazing miracle will happen, one punch or whatever. And that's not the, the meaning, and that's not the picture that's given to us here in, in uh, Romans 8. No, in all these things, we are more Hooper Nikeo. We are the ones who vanished beyond, vanquished beyond recognition, who gain a decisive victory over the things that face us. One of my favorite Old Testament stories, one of my favorite Old Testament people is Gideon. Gideon's a fascinating guy because he started out overwhelmed. It says they, when you come around and find Gideon, he is threshing grain in a wine press, which maybe doesn't mean much to us today because we don't thresh much and we don't have wine presses much. But what that means is things are so bad that the wine press that should be full of grapes and juice and all the things that would show the abundance of this land flowing with milk and honey is bone dry to the point that he can take grain in there and try to separate the little bit he has wheat and chaff and 
in doing that, he's also hiding this little bit of store he has in a place that normally would be the symbol of the abundance that God would have for his people. And he's hiding in there, threshing grain in a wine press when, when the angel of the Lord comes along and calls him and says, you're going to be the one that leads Israel to victory. And so Gideon, I guess buoyed by this reality, gathers an army. And he gathers tens of thousands, I think 30,000 or so he gathers. And he's ready. He's got his 30,000 men. He's going to fight the forces of Midian that have come against Israel. I'm ready to go to battle. And what does God tell him? You got too many. And so the first thing he does is he basically says to this 30,000 people army, anybody that's scared can leave. If you don't want to go into this fight, leave. And bunches of them leave, which must have been encouraging to the leader, right? I mean, you know, if I were to say, hey, anybody who's tired of this sermon can I'm not really saying that, just an example. Anybody who's tired of this sermon can leave, and like 90% of you left, that would be discouraging. But that's what happened. And God looks at this small 10% or so of the original army and says, that's still too many. We're going to take another test. He takes them down to the river and has to do with how they drink, whether they lap up or whether they put it in their hands. And he finally winnows it down. And Gideon is now going to face the Midianite army that's oppressed Israel with 300 people. Now, it doesn't make sense that that's how it should work. This sounds like it's going to be a Rocky Balboa moment. Midian's going to beat the snot out of them. And, and then the, the strategy for this army is unorthodox, to say the least. But nonetheless, they follow God's instruction, and these 300 men go against the Midianite army, and with the power of God, they are Hooper Nikeo. They are overcomers. They are more than conquerors because God used them and rewarded their trust in Him. And that's the picture, I think, that we should take, that we might feel outnumbered and overwhelmed by whatever battle it is we're facing. But we are, in Christ Jesus, more than conquerors. In fact, in in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, there's an interesting phrase that maybe we often associate with the word overcomer. In that that chapter of Revelation, it kind of has this very picturesque, Revelation often is, a picturesque and, and allegorical view of kind of history and and Satan coming and the victory and the the chaos that he's going to bring. And then in, in verse 11 of Revelation 12, it tells us this. They overcame him, meaning Satan, meaning the one who is the accuser of the brethren. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And usually people stop right there, but that's not where this verse stops. So let's get to third part two. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. Got to start there. What does that mean? You came in today and you saw the table for the Lord's Supper set. And you know under these dishes, under these lids, are pieces of of unleavened bread, symbolic of the broken body of Jesus, and cups of juice, symbolic of the shed blood of Jesus. The author of Revelation, John, as he got this beautiful picture of who God was and what he was doing, understood that one of the key parts of our arsenal in this fight that we're in, in this overwhelming battle we may feel in the midst of, is that we can overcome because Jesus was willing to die. He shed his blood for us. We overcome whatever is out there because of what God has done for us through Jesus by the blood of the Lamb. Not only that, by the word 
of our testimony. This is the reality that you, in knowing Christ, in placing your faith in Him, have an incredible testimony of what God has done in your life. That God has taken you, as we've talked about before, from death to life. God found you, and He didn't just fix up the few parts that needed fixing. No, He did something even more radical than that. He took you who was dead because you had turned your back on Him and disobeyed Him and made you alive in Christ and and gave to you His Holy Spirit and sent you out as His person, as His ambassador, as His child to face whatever it was. And you have that story to tell. Not what you can do, but what God has done in you. And, and that story continues not just from the moment of salvation. And it's not just about that moment where Christ saved you, but it has to do with yesterday or last Thursday or three weeks ago when in that moment God was real and answered your prayer and worked on your behalf and you have a testimony of God's continuing work on your behalf. You overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of your testimony. And then this last part's the part that makes us uncomfortable, huh? Not loving your lives so much as to shrink from death. Let me illustrate it this way. You may have heard of this little guy by the name of David. He was a shepherd who would be king. And you may have heard of this really big guy named Goliath. And there was a moment in history when Goliath was the representative of the Philistine army that was once again coming against God's people Israel. And Saul was the king of Israel. And one of the reasons Saul was the king of Israel is because he was the tallest, most handsomest, strikingest dude around. When they looked for a king in Israel, they picked him because he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And he was strong, and it was exactly what you would want in a king. And you know what Saul was doing when Goliath was out challenging Israel? He was hiding. He was as far away from Goliath as you could get, praying, hoping that someone would go out. And every day Goliath would come out and challenge God's people Israel to a fight. If you you send your champion, I'll, I'll come against them, win or take all. Great deal, right? And day in and day out, nobody would do it until that shepherd was sent by his dad to go check on his big brothers. You know, the ones that had swords and shields and armor and were in those tents, camps there in the field before the Philistines. And David comes to the battlefield and hears Goliath mocking God. And he decides, I'll fight him. I'll take him on. And he goes and tells them, oh, come on, you're crazy, little brother. That's never going to happen. They take him before King Saul. And Saul's like, really, you little pipsqueak? You're going to fight this guy? And you remember what David says? He kind of gives his resume. He says, let me tell you the word of my testimony. When I tended my dad's sheep, sometimes bears would come up. Sometimes lions would come up. You know what happened when they came up? I whooped them, thank God. Say exactly that, but you get the idea. And Saul, I guess, figured, didn't have a better idea and said, okay. Sure enough, tried to put armor on David. Didn't fit. It was too big. He's a little you know, little wimpy guy, little little pipsqueak guy. He's going to wear armor. David said, I don't need that. Goliath comes out and David says, I don't come at you in any other way than in the name of the Lord our God army of Israel thought, oh man, Goliath's too big to fight. David thought, he's too big to miss. Whoop, 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 wham. One shot, boom, down he goes. 
you remember? Should we sing that song too? No. Do you know that song? Only a boy named David? How do you go? Come on. Only what? Something, something, something. That's right. There you go. Only a boy named David. He would not allow what everybody else saw as overwhelming odds to stop him from standing in the name. He didn't love his life so much as to shrink from what could have been a deadly situation. He was willing to step up and step out. And God honored that so that David became the victor. David would one day become the king of Israel, the greatest king, the hero king of Israel, expand its borders further than anyone, the one that's still out of his line, the prophet would write, would come the one who would sit on the throne of Israel forever, Jesus Christ himself. David lived out what it meant to be an overcomer. And that is our reality. That is what we are. And here's the problem, I think, too often. I kind of already alluded to it. We don't necessarily really believe that. You know, you can lose the battle in your mind before you even take the first step into it. It's easy to do that. In fact, the greatest battlefield I think we all face is, is our thinking. I know it's mine often that I begin to, to have as my, well, seminary preaching professor used to call it, stinking thinking. That was good. I like that. I could remember that. We have stinking thinking. We don't believe these things in a practical way. We believe them like, oh yes, if I'm in church and the pastor asks me, am I an overcomer? Amen, brother. But Tuesday morning, when there's a Philistine in front of me, not literally, but figuratively like Goliath, I'm like, oh boy, this isn't good. It's a, a lot to do with how we think. And, and, and 2 Corinthians chapter 10, one of the things that Paul writes there tells us that our thinking is a huge problem. In 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 5, actually we'll go back before that, but in verse 5 he says this, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. As you go through your life, there will be plenty of times and plenty of situations where you can think already that the battle is lost. And you can buy in to that line of thinking so that you never even take the first step onto the battlefield. You've lost before you get there. It's the kind of thinking that says, well, I'll never be able to fill in the blank. Whatever that situation is. I'll never have that marriage that I want. My relationship with this person will never be like I want it. My, my relationship with my kids will never be fixed. My financial situation will never be better. My, my health, my, my weight, my this, my that, it'll never change. And what does God say about never? When we say, I can't, I just can't do it, there's nothing I can do. What, is, what does the scripture tell us? It tells us, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We say, oh, this is impossible. What does Jesus say? Nothing is impossible with God. He, he does say before that, by the way, with man, you're, you're pretty much out of luck. But nothing is impossible with God. We say, I don't have enough faith. I just don't believe enough. And what does the scripture say? How much faith do you need? Faith the size of a mustard seed. See, I think we have this weird idea that you have to have enough 
faith, that how much faith you have matters. And you know, I think the opposite of that is the actual reality. How much faith you have doesn't matter if it's in the wrong stuff. It's not the amount of our faith, it's the objects of our faith. And Jesus tells just a little mustard seed, just a itty bit worth of faith in a great and almighty and awesome God is more than enough to take to this mountain and go throw yourself in the sea. Let's pretend. Do you like to pretend? Let's say you were hiking in the glorious mountains of, I don't know, we're on the East Coast, we'll say where? Alaska. Oh, wow, it's cold up there. Even now, it's still cold. Let's say you're hiking in the glorious mountains of Alaska, and you lose your footing and slip, and just at the last minute, as you're about to go over the edge, you grab onto the edge of a cliff, and you look below you, and it's hundreds of feet to the bottom, and your grip, because, you know, it's rocky and loose, is is slowly slipping. You have to make a decision. What am I going to do? And you look below you, and there are three limbs sticking out from the side of that mountain, all close enough to you that if you think as you're hanging there, if I just let go of those limbs, if I can grab one of them, oh, I'll be fine. And you look down at three of them, you have to make a choice, right? You have to pick which limb you think will hold you. Now, here's my question. What's most important? How much you think that limb will hold you or how deeply its roots run into that rocky cliff that you're hanging off the side of? Which one? How many vote for how much I think it will hold me is the most important factor? Exactly. How many vote for it's important how strong it is and how firm it's connected to that mountain? Yes, that's the important thing. So if I just have a little bit of faith that it's going to hold me, but I pick the right branch, I'm okay. And a lot of people in our world have picked the wrong branch, and they have a lot of faith in it. They've decided that, that money and security from wealth is really the branch that will hold them. And they've, they've sold out completely for that branch. But guess what? It'll fail. You know, there, there, I heard this. I, I never heard this before. And even though my, my brother is a funeral director, you'd think he would have told me. You can, uh, in the event you, you get to that point, men, their suits that are called uh, funeral suits, you know what they don't have? Pockets. Why? Because you can't take it with you, right? No U-Hauls behind a hearse, as the old saying goes. I thought that was fascinating. I heard that, you know, interesting point. And people put a lot of their, their, their efforts into that bank account, and their securities in that number. But one day, that number won't matter. A lot of people put their, their faith, a lot of it, into to the pursuit of pleasure, entertainment, or whatever. And they invest tons of their time and even of their, their money in it. And ultimately, it's not going to last. It's not how much you believe something's going to save you. It's the quality of that something you believe in. And, and Jesus says, you know, just the faith the size of mustard seed. What do we believe? As, as Paul would say, we can take every thought captive so that we don't lose the battle before the first blow are exchanged. We Deal with the reality, and that's why in in, uh, Romans chapter 12, what does it say? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But Beth Moore talks about re-wallpapering the hallways of your mind. I like that image. 
and they redecorate them. And what do you wallpaper them with? You wallpaper them with the truth of God's Word, the truth of the Bible. So when you're walking down that hallway, you see all the realities of who you are and who God is and what He has done and what He's calling you to and what He promises. And if those are the thoughts, no matter what the trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword might be, you've got that as your reality. You can walk down that hall and be encouraged in your thinking so that when you go into the battle, you go in knowing the truth about what you are, who Jesus is, and how He promises to rescue you. And when we face those battles, a couple of verses before in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, listen to what it says. It says, the weapons we fight with, actually verse 4, are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power, I love this word, to demolish strongholds. Good stuff, demolish. It's like the big brother tearing down the little brother's Lego block tower. Oh, that's what I picture. Or the little sister tearing down the big brother's. That's more like our household, but nonetheless. You know, just demolish it. Just want to tear it up. We have these weapons. And, and, and what, what's the, the Ephesians chapter 6? Paul says, when you face life, when you enter each day, put on the full armor of God. Good stuff. A helmet of salvation. A breastplate of righteousness. Shoes fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. What else we got? We got the shield of faith. I know I'm forgetting something. Helmet of truth. The belt. Thank you. The belt of truth. Thank you. The belt of truth. The helmet of salvation. Breastplate of righteousness. Shoes fitted. Shield of faith. And what's the last one? The sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We, we have this weapon. We have these weapons that can demolish strongholds. Whatever is the situation, God has equipped us to overcome it. I've used this movie a lot lately, but The Princess Bride. How many of you have not seen The Princess Bride? Not. Oh, that's a shame. That's next Sunday's sermon. We're just going to show the movie. No, not really. It's It's a fabulous, fun movie. And one of the characters in it is Inigo Montoya. And whenever you see him, he is a swordsman. He has practiced his whole life because the six-fingered man killed his father. And he cannot wait till he meets the six-fingered man. And those of you who have seen the movie, say it with me. He will say to him, my name is Enigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. No? Yes. Beautiful moment. Well, early on in the movie, he is in a duel with who turns out to be the dread pirate Roberts. I don't want to ruin too much for you. And he's in this duel with him, and as they're, they're sword fighting, uh, at one point, apparently, Inigo Montoya is smiling. And the masked man wants to know why he's smiling. He says, I know something you do not know. I am not left-handed. He'd been sword fighting in his left hand because he wanted to make it fair. He was such a good swordsman. And so in that moment, he tosses, ah, la, la, la. Remember? She had to be there for that. I am not left-handed. Take the sword. And that, that needs to be us. We need to have that confidence that he did. That when we have these battles, when we are in those moments where we feel overwhelmed, we're not left-handed. We're not hamstrung. We're not somehow left less than able to handle whatever circumstance we've been faced with. For we are more than conquerors. We are 
supernatural. We can put that sword of the Spirit in our hand and have our minds wallpapered with its truth and face whatever there may be in front of us. Not because of who we are, not because of our skill and ability, but because of what Christ has done for us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. I want to end there. I think they might be up on the screen. I can't remember if I put them there. I'll just pick them up in case. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says this. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? It is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the source of of our faith. That's the source of our victory. It's who Jesus is and what he has done. When we place our faith in him, then the reality that all of those things that we will face in our life, we are more than conquerors over every one of them, which is why we once a month observe the Lord's Supper together. Because in these elements, we symbolize the truth of who Jesus is. And we remind ourselves of the sacrifice he made. We proclaim his death, Scripture says, so that whatever we might face, we know we are ready, we are armed, we are prepared, because not of anything remarkable about us, but because of what he has done on our behalf. And so today we're going to take these elements together. We're going to take a broken piece of unleavened bread, symbolic of the sinlessness, and the broken body. We're going to take a cup of juice reminding us of His shed blood because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And it's my hope today that as we pass these and as we take them together, that it will cement in your mind and in your heart the truths that we talked about today. That He came and shed His blood so that you would have a testimony that when you live for Him, You can overcome whatever it is that you may face. Now, just so you don't get the wrong message, that doesn't mean we win every time. We could look at our lives and say, you know, there are some losses. There are some times where maybe I didn't have everything come out the way I wanted. That doesn't make us less than an overcomer. Because I think It's especially in those moments, at least in my life, when it seems like there is loss and there is maybe even we feel like defeat. The reality of the resurrection. Because if there was ever a moment in history where everything seemed lost, it had to be when they pulled Jesus' body off the cross. And I'm thinking that those disciples that took this supper with him personally and heard him say the words that we'll repeat today thought in that moment that was the end. Thought in that moment that there was no such thing as victory. That they had invested their lives up to that point for nothing. Of course, we know the the rest of the story. We know what happens three days later. That out of certain victory comes incredible or certain defeat comes incredible victory. Maybe that's the case for us too. That's the case even if we were to talk about the reality 
of death. Isn't it good to know that of all the things that maybe we we dread and fear, not only for ourselves but for those we love the most, even that is victory. We had one of our our uh, dear friends, one of our folks in the church, Fred Clark, passed away yesterday. It, was, it is sad for those of us who know him. It's, it's devastating for family and friends. But so far, everybody I've talked to knows that that's not the end of the story. That's not the last chapter that's been written. That even in what looks like defeat and death, there's great victory. Because Fred was with his Lord. And I'm going to guess, maybe I'm wrong, that after he said, Oh, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. He probably asked, where's Marilyn? And I'm going to guess, at some point, there's a line of people up there waiting for him. That in his life, he told how they could know his Savior. And they're there because of him. And many more will be there because of him. That sounds pretty victorious to me. That sounds like overcoming. And that is the hope for which Christ died. And let me say, as we're about to take this this supper together, if you don't know that, you can know it today. If you don't know the hope of eternity with Christ forever, the salvation, the forgiveness of sins, you can know it if you turn in faith toward the one who in this supper is symbolized. The one whose body was broken and blood shed for you. Jesus, who demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died. I'm going to invite our deacons to come and prepare the table for us today. And as we pass these elements, I want you to think on the truths we've talked about. Who Jesus is. And because of who He is, then who are we in Him? Maybe you've got something today, this week, this month, these last six months, these last five years, that you have felt overwhelmed by. I hope as you hold these elements in your hand, you'll use this time to remind yourself and to allow God by His Holy Spirit to remind you of what He has done and who you are more than a conqueror.